0: a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. How is everyone doing? How are you doing where you are? I hope that you are doing well. I am doing so good because the sun is out where I'm at and the snow is melting and I have come to learn something. I don't like snow. I don't like darkness. I don't like any of that. I want sun. Please give me sun and help me to move where there is someplace sunny. I don't know about you, but I get down. I get down when there's just so much darkness and you just can't get out with people and it's cold and you're just kind of stuck in the house and, man, I can't wait for summer. So I hope that it continues to get warmer and I can't wait for the time to change so that we can have some serious sun. Now, some of you who have been around for a while, and I'm talking on the way back machine here. We're talking like 1981, all right? I know that many who are listening to my voice right now, you haven't even sniffed that far away. You were born in the 2000s. You have no idea what was going on in 1981. But there was this old dude who used to run the news. Actually, he was the CBS News anchor, Walter Cronkite. And Walter Cronkite, he he was he reported on some of the greatest events of the 20th century. He was a big deal. He was a big name. He's not like now where you've got so many different news networks and you hardly know who anybody is who's on television. But back then, you only had basically CBS, NBC, ABC, and every once in a while you might get another station, depending on how you could arrange your TV antenna. And he, though, was one of the greatest reporters, really. And he ended all his broadcasts with this really signature phrase that he had. And he would say, and that's the way it is. And then he would give the date. Now, I think that if Cronkite lived during the time of the early church, that this event that we're going to be reading about today, he would have reported on it. It would have been one of those newsworthy stories that people would have wanted to hear and understand what it meant. And I I, I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes you'll read a story or you'll hear a Bible story and you're like, I have no idea what that means. Can you please tell me, help me to understand it and and bring it out for me? And, And when we get into the book of Acts, which is where we've been at for the past several weeks, I mean, what did the events in Acts chapter three mean? Why did Luke, who is the author of this book that we've learned, Dr. Luke, why did he include it in here for us today? You know, yesterday's news often forms the way we live in the future. It is. Everything that happens helps to understand our our future. Just if we were to go back, let's say, over a year and a half ago, and we were to talk about COVID or social distancing, you would have had no clue what we were talking about. But now, since we've experienced all those things, it helps shape how we understand and see different things that are going on. So this this passage that we have in Acts shows us who we really are where and in what we find our hope. And right now, I think people just have hope in all kinds of crazy stuff. They're just hoping that stuff gets over with. They hope in themselves. They just, they actually, they don't even think about hope. They just want to veg, tune out, and hope that it all passes. It's like being on a plane at 33,000 feet, and you're flying across the ocean, and you just want to watch all of the movies that you can until you actually get there. And I think that's what a lot of people are doing. People are just saying, I want to just get through this as fast as as possible. But when we get into this text, here we have an event so incredible that it's really hard to believe. I, I, it's hard to believe. For it shows us who we really are. And again, where and in what we find our hope. And that, I'm not talking about Jesus. Where I mean, where is our hope at? And it also shows us who God is desires us to be. So I want to read our text for us. We're in Acts chapter 3, and we're going through the entire chapter here. So just stay with me. And it's a story. So I just want to fade into this story. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man Lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called Beautiful Gate to ask alms of those who were entering the temple. I want to pause just there for a minute. I was in India and went to the Taj Mahal, and there were lame people. I mean, people without legs or their legs were broken, and they had to crawl around on their hands. And they had little mats, and people would come and bring them there every day. And it felt very much like the world of the New Testament. In our culture today, we don't have that as much, especially in the West. We don't see that as often, but here it was every day. And I've seen it in Jerusalem. I've seen it in India and uh, I've seen it all over the place. In Egypt, I've just seen it all over. So here we get back to our, our, our text. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. I don't know if they said it like that, but they said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. I mean, total get this. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong and leaping up he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them walking and leaping and praising god and all the people saw him walking and praising god and recognized him as one as the one who sat at the beautiful gate at the of the temple asking for alms and they were filled with wonder and excitement at what had happened to them just if we were to finish there you would have been like wow but how does that apply today? I can't just walk up and do that to someone, right? I mean, do you have that ability? I don't. I've not yet seen that. Okay. Why, why is it there then? Well, let's get back to our text. We're going we're to elaborate the story a little bit further. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel. but you deny the holy and righteous one and ask for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed to you for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken, from Samuel and those who came after him, also proclaim these days You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. As we saw last week, the early church was really devoted to seeking God in prayer. It's pretty amazing when you look at it. And and remember, since all of the early church came out of Judaism, they held on to the practice of Judaism, including the designated times of prayer, morning, afternoon, and evening. Now, here we have Peter and John, two of Jesus's inner circle, were going to the Jewish temple at 3 p.m. during the, the time of the gift offering and often called the hour of confession. And Many pious Jews would come at that hour. There were, there were several different gates at the temple, and Peter and John were passing through the gate known as the Beautiful Gate when they encountered a man who had been born with legs that didn't work and who was probably about 40 years old. Most families were not overly sensitive to a child's disability. Having traveled in India, like I said before, and traveled around the world, yeah, there's not a lot of sensitivity or grace to it. I have a friend of mine who grew up in the Middle East, and he had a disability, and he said every time he turned around, he was beaten. He was beaten by his family because they felt that his disability was a curse upon them. He was beaten on the way to school. He was beaten by his classmates. He was made fun of and even beaten by his teacher. So we see that disability in the ancient world was not always looked on so well or with such great grace and mercy. Many were actually cast off and left for dead. And this guy had to be carried to the beautiful gate of the temple daily. It was a prime spot. I mean, you got to, you know, location, 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 right? And there was a lot of foot traffic, which meant that he could get more alms and get more food and everything that he needed. And since it was believed by Jews that giving alms would actually bring atonement for their sins, this spot was perfect for a cripple like himself to get money. Jewish law actually forbade any man who had a deformity or disability of any kind to go to the temple. But this man got as close as he could. Now, I understand that many of us aren't familiar with the temple and everything that's around it or familiar with it. But I'm trying to give you an idea of what it looked like because the temple was really the center for life in Jerusalem. And this man, in many ways, is representative of us in our spiritual condition. You know, I believe that God sovereignly put this deformed, disabled man at the beautiful gate, okay, get the name, to show that no matter how close we want to get, we can't get to the beautiful God. So Luke has included this because in Acts 3, it shows our helplessness. It's really where we are. He was dependent upon the charity of others. And while we may not physically be like him, we are like him spiritually, helpless. We can't get to God on our own. There's no self-help about it. I mean, we can read all the blogs and go to the news sites and check it out. And I'm good enough and I'm smart enough and people like me. Yeah, you can say that all you want, but that's not what he's talking about. I mean, God loves us. He has. He sees us as worthy and he does set his love upon us, but we can't get to God. We can't fill the void in our own heart on our own. We can't. We are spiritually helpless. And he's really a reminder that life is tough. COVID has shown us anything, it's that. We're born damaged, every single one of us, with hardware that we can't change, with software that glitches in a, different, a bunch of different ways. We've got our sins and the things we struggle with and things we we like and things about ourselves we don't like. I mean, life is tough and we're all dealt different hands that we really can't change. From birth, he knew it was going to be hard. He knew that many didn't want him around, but he also knew that he had to survive. That's what most of us do. We try our best to cope with the hand that we're dealt with. Rarely does life go exactly the way we want it. We try to to, to best to get by, to do what's right, but our right is not enough. It couldn't change his condition, and it can't change ours either. He'd been doing this, the same thing, day after day for years. But today, he had a heavenly appointment. People passed by all the time, didn't even turn their heads, didn't even acknowledge him. They ignored him. He learned early on that you... You only pay attention to those who pay attention to you. So he kept calling out of habit, hoping to get something. And finally, Peter and John approached. Peter looked at him, as did John. Peter then to, uh, I mean, told him to look at them. No mindless staring off into the crowds. They wanted his full attention, which he was ready to give, thinking he's going to get something in return. And, and calling out with no response can become a hopeless task. But now he had people telling him to look at them. Surely he was going to get something. Money would be a huge help, but it would only be a temporary help. You know, he's a, he's a picture in how we really trust in the wrong things. We think that there are all kinds of things that will help us out, help us feel better, help us get through money, power, porn, status, wrong relationships, food, drugs, alcohol, entertainments, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on and on. I mean, we trust in so many things, but we really don't trust in God, if we do trust in God, it's our own God, the God of our own making, this moral therapeutic deity we see in the world who approves everybody and loves everybody, which is great, but he's got no wrath. There's no holiness. There's, there's nothing like that. And really, he's really a useless God. But the biblical God is someone entirely different. And he loves us with a love greater than any of that moral therapeutic deity could ever love. And he's got more mercy than that moral therapeutic deity could ever show. And he's also got more grace, more steadfastness, and he's more personal. We trust in the many lies the world puts before us. And, and we see it everywhere. Just go online. Just go to Netflix and see what the shows are. There's the glamorization of sins and lifestyles that cause us going to, to debt in some way or bondage to get it. I mean, we're willing to sacrifice ourselves to get it. And this is actually one of the things that I see between younger people and older people. You know, younger people are so busy trying to become what the world values and want it to become and tells it to become that people will sacrifice everything to do it. And most of the time, it simply leads to complete heartbreak. Occasionally, some succeed, but what they find is that they really didn't want it in the first place for the pleasure it offers is Fleeting. But it's assaulting us everywhere we go. Older people, on the other hand, have tried those things, realized it didn't offer what they thought it did, and rather than waste their lives anymore, try to find the best way to live within what they have and who they are. It doesn't always work that way, of course. Young people get it earlier and older people fail to get it later, but the principle still is pretty true across the board. We need to believe the scripture before we pursue the lies of the world and save ourselves a lot of heartache and regret the process. And this is where it's going to get really personal for me, because I have this stuff flying at me all the time. Every time I turn around or I scroll through news feeds and I see what's going on in the world... I'm overwhelmed at the amount of information. I'm well overwhelmed at what people have accomplished. I'm overwhelmed at all the things that people seem to be doing and the happy lives that they seem to have. And I get down. Don't you? Maybe you're not like me. But i that's what happens to me. I get down. I think I'm not good enough. I think I'm not smart enough or beautiful enough or talented enough or determined enough or disciplined enough. And I, I constantly feel that way. And then I have to ask, but who is my audience? Who, who's the person that I'm doing this for? And then I have to reorient myself that it's to God. And I live my life before an audience of one. And that helps get things better. And then I shut off the TV, and then I try to go do something with my wife or my kids because that makes me a lot more happy rather than just slipping through my phone. I have to actually delete my news sites every once in a while because I get so down. And honestly, on social media, I don't like posting a whole lot about myself because I really, I, I don't really want to offer up my life in that way. I don't know about you. I mean, it's great to communicate with family and friends and things like, you know, little anecdotes here and there, but I don't feel like everybody needs to know what's going on with my life 24-7, or do I want them to? That's just me. I'm getting like that old guy that's, get off my lawn. That's the, that's the internet equivalent. Anyway, let's get back to our text, huh? Returning to our text in verse 5. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, I've seen a lot of scholars gloss over this. Uh, let's let's try to tra- draw this out a little bit. And people just skim all around, uh, back and forth. But let's really kind of get to the heart and find out what this is really saying here. Peter, Peter doesn't have any money to give, to, give him. But what he does have is is Jesus. I know that might seem trite, of course, because we've heard the name of Jesus. But really, he does. He wants to give him Jesus. And Jesus, or excuse me, and he gives the power that Jesus gave him to heal him. And while we look at Peter and John with a man born lame, we see that God saw us in our misery and by sending us his spirit to be in his people. You know, that's what God does. He comes and lives in you and work through them. It's God's way to help us. God came to help us where we are. We think that God is unaware or unwilling to come to us in the middle of our circumstances, but he actually comes in a wide variety of ways to show himself that are not always obvious to us. Now, I know that the real question is, is does God still heal today? Why doesn't he do that with me? Well, let me consider both of these questions. Does God heal today? And, I, and when I mean heal, I mean exactly that, a miraculous healing from a sickness or disability. I'm not talking about medicine, although that is a type of healing, or healing from a sickness that may have occurred over time anyway. I'm talking about a bona fide, supernatural, instantaneous healing of something that was completely broken and made whole. All right, let's get after that. Uh, does God still heal like that? The answer is yes. Did I say yes? Yes. Did I say yes? Yes, I did. And here's why. He uses people to do it, but there are some conditions that must be met that I think we often miss. Here's what I mean. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that there are gifts of healings. Now it's a double plural in Greek. Which is, and it's a double plural. So, which means that there are different kinds of gifts for different kinds of healings that need to take place, which could mean physical, mental, emotional, etc. However, the gift in operation is the gift of the physical kind that Peter possessed. Peter couldn't heal whomever he wanted, whenever he wanted. All right. So you see these guys on TV and they're walking up and have people on the stage and they just do that. That's garbage. That is garbage. 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 Okay? Did I say that enough? It's garbage. Here's why it really bugs me. Okay? Well, no. I'll get back to that. You're going to get me fired up. All right? Here we go. So, God supernaturally spoke to him to indicate who needed to be healed. Some scholars actually say that the gifts of healings is attached to the gift of faith that Paul also talks about in 1 Corinthians, which is different than saving faith or sanctifying faith. It is the belief that God will do something supernatural in a moment and that there is certainty to it. It's not something that can be conjured up or declared, and then God has to do it as if God was a big giant genie, and if we say the right words or rub the lamp the right way, we can control him. No! It's when God says by his spirit to the person, I'm going to heal that person over there and I want to use you to do it. And here's who I'm going to use to explain this in a pretty awesome way. And then I'm going to bring the beat down to Benny Hinn. Okay. R.A. Torrey was the first superintendent of Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, Illinois. And he actually had one of those gifts of healings. And he tells stories of people he healed with broken limbs or hunchbacks. This is not the healing that Benny Hinn talks about where he says, you are healed, but if you stop believing in the healing, it will go away. That is complete garbage. I could rip this microphone out of the, the just rip it right now and throw it across the room because I've seen him do that and it makes me so angry. Does not that make you mad? I, here's why. It's garbage because it keeps the person in a prison of guilt where they are beating themselves up all the time because they feel sick and then disbelieve. The scripture knows none of that kind of healing. It only knows a supernatural and instantaneous kind. Tori actually, though, had that gift. But even then, he said he couldn't heal everyone, only those God told him to heal, and that ministry was actually secondary to his proclamation or preaching ministry. That is exactly the kind that Jesus did too. He healed, but didn't heal everyone, and when he did heal and was becoming famous, he refused to go and heal more to cater to the crowds, choosing to go to other places to Preach the gospel. So God does heal instantaneously and supernaturally when he gifts the gift of faith to the person with one of the gifts of healings. Now let me brought, dry this out again for, for Hin here for a second. This is where I'm gonna bring the beat down. Because what Hin says is that okay, he'll bring someone on the stage and he'll put his hand on him and he goes, You're healed right now. But if you doubt that healing, it's gonna go away. Now let me tell you this: if you've got a broken arm and that is healed. You don't need to doubt it so it will go away, right? Why is it that only the people that come onto stage that he heals are only those who have illnesses that you can't see? Where are the hunchbacks? Where are the broken arms and the limbs? Where's that? Okay? Because he doesn't do it. He is a charlatan. He is a wolf. He is a false teacher. And it's guys like that that got my dad killed. If you go back a few episodes, you'll see that because my dad was a part of that movement that believed if you had enough faith, you conjure it up then you will be healed. He didn't go to the doctor. And by the time that everything, I mean, he got rid of his insurance and went through everything else. And by that time he was too late for him and he was dead at 35 years of age. So to say that I got issue with faith teachers is an understatement because I have seen these guys and their false teaching and what it does. I had a guy in my church in Massachusetts who was told that if he put his hand on the TV, received Jesus by faith and declared that 2006 was his year, he would have a year of bounty and prosperity and he lost his job he had a stroke and he was so depressed because he felt God failed him that he took a bunch of pills and he killed himself if you think that these guys are not false teachers then you need to really go back to examine the scriptures Because you are following people that are children of darkness. And I'm talking about Kenneth Copeland. And I'm talking about Benny Hinn. And I'm talking about Paula White. I mean, you want me to get after it? You want to talk about Joel Osteen? These are false teachers. False teachers. Sorry, I had a little fired up there. I just get so frustrated. I mean, the purpose of all this was to put into Holy Scripture was to help show Jesus's power. That's that's why it's there. It was in Jesus's name that this man was healed. Jesus was behind the healing, and this miracle served to verify all that he said and did. It caused people to hold the name of Jesus in high regard. The name of Jesus is powerful because it carries of all of who he is and what he says behind it. Okay. And I, I don't pretend to know why God always heals people in certain situations. Or excuse me, why God heals and why he doesn't. I mean, I wish I had this gift. I don't. I, I had a couple walk up to me when I was in India. I, I got done speaking in this couple. They were so young. They didn't speak any English. And I was tired. I was nervous because I don't know if I communicated with my audience very well. And there's such a cultural separation. And I love the people there. They're so great. They're so giving. And they this couple... Handed me a baby. This baby was sick and this baby was dying. I didn't know what to do. I just held the baby and prayed. It broke my heart. It did. It broke my heart. And I prayed for that baby the best I could and gave it back. And I never know what happened to that child. But I pray that God does use and transform. But I love what actually happens after this guy's healed. Look at verse 7. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, a happy dance. Woo. And we have a special guest that's coming on in the show in April, Oz Guinness. And when I learned that we were able to uh, have Oz come on the show. I was so excited and I did a jig. I was so happy. Now Oz is just an amazing scholar and author and a he, he, brilliant man. I love his stuff and I'm looking forward to dialoguing with him, but I can't imagine. I mean, that's just meeting someone that I've read over the years and I've been pretty in awe of, but can you imagine having a lifetime illness and having it taken away in that moment in time and that you're being restored to the community? Talk about happy dance. I don't know if breakdancing was invented there or not, but could have been. I mean, Peter reaching out his right hand and picking him up. (laughs) And this man had felt someone pick him up for his entire life. (laughs) He could feel the hand, but the weight would often be too much for that hand to lift. But here it's different. The weight gave way and became light. Suddenly, there was a feeling that he'd never had before. A tingling in his feet and legs. He had control of his feet. And it was awesome. He leapt up, amazed at his new strength. He stood there, got his balance, for he had never stood before. I mean, he had to, it had have been just awesome. He leapt up, amazed at his new strength, and he stood there, got his balance. And, and it didn't, I didn't want to lose this feeling. So he wanted what he had seen everyone do around him walk. He took one step and then another and then another. And then he realized that he could do what had been forbidden to do his entire life. Enter the temple. (laughs) Sorry. This thing. I, I love these stories that God gives us of life changing and being transformed. It just melts my heart. Makes me want to cry. Okay. He stood there. And then, I mean, went into the temple. And the feeling of looking at people at eye level. I mean, probably put his shoulders back and not be dependent upon anyone to enter the temple to finally feel like God cared and that you could have access to God. There is no feeling that could possibly describe what he went through. He started to walk and then he was leaping and praising God because he knew God was behind it. That's what happens when God intervenes in your life and shows himself to you. He shows his power at work and it always surprises us. It's amazing how we can feel whole again, freed of a burden of a thousand lifetimes that has suddenly been lifted from your soul to feel the exhilaration that comes with being free, to know that you've been forgiven, to know that your guilt is gone. It's one of the greatest feelings of relief that you can ever know. I mean, I remember when I came to know Jesus, when I, I mean, I grew up in church, but it wasn't until I 18 that it really made sense that I repented of my sin and turned to Jesus. And and when that happened, I felt lighter. I mean, it's not been a perfect ride, of course, on the way. There have been ups and downs all the time, but but to know that I've been forgiven. And I gotta constantly, though, battle the guilt and the shame and not feeling good enough and not being enough and learning how to 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 live in joy and be joy. That's not just based on my emotions. I don't know if you're like that or not, but I am. You know, C.S. Lewis actually you know, he's my hero, of course, entitled his autobiography, Surprised by Joy. He borrowed the title from the first line of a William Wordsworth poem, aptly named Surprised by Joy, Impatient as the Wind. He chose the title because he had a moment happen when he forgot about the death of his beloved daughter for a few moments. We're talking about William Wordsworth. Joy came when it was not expected. And for many of us, we think that following Jesus... And honestly, I'm going to be really frank right now. Some of us find Jesus boring and a burden, but the actual opposite is true. And it's my contention that I'm not really sure who you know. You might know about him. You might even say you know him and you might know the doctrine, but you've not known the experience of being in his presence. Joy came when it was not expected. Some of us are Christ followers who have never really experienced that joy, but it makes me wonder if the belief is genuine. Again, not that we're not going to have down times, not, we're going to, not that we're not going to have dark nights of the soul. I mean, we have to learn to be joyous, practice joy, enter into joy. We I really do believe the scripture that the joy of the Lord is our strength and that Jesus pursued his joy by pursuing the cross because he knew that it would lead to our salvation. Lewis trusted in Jesus and was surprised by the joy that it brought. The lame beggar was surprised by joy. And it makes me wonder, are we? Do we, do we really know who Jesus is? And what he means to the universe? <laughs> do we understand what God offers us in Christ? Sometimes we just see the words. It's like repeating a word over and over and over again, and that it doesn't make any sense. And sometimes you hear the word enough and enough and enough, and you just, it just grows cold after a while. And there are times where God just has to really reorient our hearts and show up again. We've often tried to apologize for the church and what's going on in the church and make things more palpable for people. And we want to entertain them to make them feel good. But God doesn't offer to entertain people. He offers to transform their life, though. Upended in a way that can be terribly painful, but extremely amazing. (laughs) Hey, look at verse 9. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. You know, the words for the response of the people reveal that they were stunned. The wording here indicates that they were stupefied, shocked, and wondered what it meant. But this is what happens when Christ comes into your life. He surprises us by joy, but he stuns other people. Who has been amazed at the change in your life? When God works in your life and causes other people to wonder, some will try to laugh it off, reason it away. They might think it's a, a phase or a midlife crisis. Is, this is like uh, when they, you know, they might say to themselves, this might be when you took up that diet. It'll do for a little bit and then it'll go away. But, you know, when Christ really enters a life, it will stun those around them because they will be different, think different, treat others different. There will be a new joy in their life and make those around them want to know what they have. You know, I found this out firsthand. I went back after high school, and I I came to know Jesus the second part of my senior year of high school. Like, really, decided to follow him and give him my complete allegiance. And that was hard. I mean, on one level, I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I was in a small town, and our church really didn't know much about discipleship. I mean, the sermons were basically— old Billy Graham sermons or what uh, the pastor had listened to on the 700 clubs. There wasn't anything about exegesis or expository preaching or anything like that. So I was kind of left to my own devices to kind of learn and figure this stuff out myself. And though God was gracious and merciful in that, and I thumbed my, you know, I fuddled my way, I went back and forth. And I mean, I was dealing with my sin and I was frustrated with my sin. And, you know, on one level, you're like burning your stuff because you see that in the book of Acts. You're like, OK, this is sinful. I got to get rid of this in my life. And then you're, you know, you're good for a bit and then you turn right back to it. And but God was continually changing my life showing me how to pray. I mean, and I was a bull in a china shop. I mean, I was a terrible witness. I mean, in that I didn't know what to say. I would say stuff and it was the inner, the wrong thing to say at the wrong time, or it was the right thing to say at the wrong time. Mostly it just was something wrong to say or the wrong time. Either one of those just keep changing them back and forth. And it was a few years later Actually, maybe a decade later, and I was with my my best friend who had, who had grown up. I mean, we'd been best friends through high school, and when I came to know Jesus, he was not excited about that. And then he turned to Jesus in college, and then it was like we were best friends all over again. It was awesome. But we were talking about going back to school for a reunion, and he just said, you are so different. I mean, you look different, but you sound different. You're a different person than you were before. And, and that's what happens. It, it stuns other people. People are surprised and they start asking questions. That's what happens when Christ really enters a life. There will be a new joy in their life that makes those around them want to know what they have. As the people were standing there stunned, Peter gives the opportunity to share the good news of Jesus. And Peter shows us where true hope is found. As the crowd is coming, the formerly lame man is clinging to Peter and John. The wording indicates that he was holding on so that he didn't get sent away. Perhaps afraid of the crowds or authorities would recognize him as the lame guy and send him away. He's like trying to get away. And Peter's like, no, 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 no. You're going to stay right here for a second. But he had been changed and the old rules no longer applied. I mean, like they thought, oh, he's going to shoo him away. He's unclean. He doesn't fit the temple. There's all these rules and regulations. But Peter wanted them to wanted them all to know that the reason that this man was there was because of the power of Jesus at work in him. It wasn't because of Peter and John's strength, or their piety, or their faith that this man was healed, as if they could build up healing points by obedience and then could be dispersed on whomever they felt was worthy. no? Peter made a special effort to connect Jesus back to the Messiah, who had been promised as the descendant of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. You can see that in verse 13. He then goes on to describe the culpability in the whole thing, their culpability in the whole thing. They were the ones, I mean, talking about the audience now, they were the ones who delivered Jesus over to Pilate after Pilate had declared him not guilty. They were the ones who denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer in his place. And then to top it all off, they had him killed, the very author of life. I want to stop for a second. To say that this is bold is an understatement. Peter had seen the crowd go after Jesus and had him killed. And now he is testifying in front of them about the same man. What would be the result? I mean, what would they do? Would they revolt? I mean, the change was too amazing. Peter takes the opportunity to point out their complicity in the whole thing. I mean, that's that's some serious holy chutzpah, okay? And yet... He offers them a savior and shows them living proof of the power of that savior by healing the man born lame. It was instantaneous and it was complete healing. There was no way that they could explain it away. It was Jesus who changed them. He also wanted them to know that while they were guilty, they acted in complete ignorance. They had no idea how great he really was. But Peter wanted them to know and understand that even that was part of God's magnificent plan. God had foretold Jesus' suffering long ago in the scriptures and had now fulfilled it. And now there was an opportunity, an opportunity beyond their imagination, hope of a kind that they had never seen before, to be made right with God. To be forgiven of their great sin of having the Lord of glory killed. And how did they enter into that opportunity? How could that hope become real? Peter tells them in verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back. Now, to have it, here's what we have to do, okay? We have to repent, which means agreeing with God all about our sin and turning away from it. I I had a Muslim guy tell me one time as we were talking, he says, what do you need to do to be saved? I said, well, you believe you have to be saved by works and we believe that it's saved by faith. He goes, do you have to do anything? And he goes, do you have to repent? I said, yes. He goes, then that's a work. No, it's simply a description of what going back to God looks like. That's what it is. The word is a great word in Greek. It's in the imperative mood, an active voice. You are to do this action, not anyone else. You know, we can't have God in our sin. We can't. That's what the moral therapeutic deity that we see in America often and in our world says is okay. But the biblical God? No. He's too holy. And he gave too much. He's saying, you have to repent. You have to do this action, not anyone else. You, have to, you, were, you were commanded to turn away. And this turn away is pregnant with this idea of abhorring your sin and embracing right contact. I have heard a great many Christians recently tries to excuse their disobedience by saying that they are saved and God has got them. Therefore, they can be as disobedient as they want. No. You know, Romans chapter 6, verse 1 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? We can't. It's a rhetorical question made to wake you up. Simply put, you can't stay in your sin and hold on to the Savior. It can't be done. It's the opposite is day and night. The two cannot exist together in a a voluntary basis. Allow me to read Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 through 31. Okay, just stay with me. Dear friends, if we deliberately continue, continue sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. There is only the terrible expectation of God's judgment and the raging fire that will consume his enemies. For anyone who refused to obey the law of Moses was put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Just think how much worse the punishment will be for those who have trampled on the Son of God and have treated the blood of the covenant which made us holy as if it were common and unholy and have insulted and disdained the Holy Spirit who brings God's mercy to us. For we know the one who said, I will take revenge, I will pay them back. He also said, the Lord will judge his own people." It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You know, you know what really hurts me? It's what makes me sad. It's what drives me crazy. It's when people say that, that, you know, following God is not that big a deal or that they just say it's okay. God's okay with where I'm at. I've talked to him about it and he says it's fine. It really makes me sad because it's not true. They believed a lie. And I want that for all my family. I want that for my friends. I I, I mean, meaning that I want them to repent. I want them to turn back. We have to practice this in in our hearts. And Peter calls us to repent so that our sins will be blotted out. I mean, the word means to obliterate, erase, wipe out, blot out. Peter calls us to repent so that our sins may be removed. He wants to erase them. Ink in the ancient world didn't have a sticky quality to it so that it it couldn't stick to parchment. It could have water poured on it and it would simply wash off. Jesus takes away your sin from you, the guilt of all your sins from the time you were born until now. No matter how bad it was, no matter how heinous the action, Christ's death was sufficient. It was not meant for the smallest of sins that most would gloss over. It was for the worst of the sins that you had ever done. He calls us to repent, enter into this forgiveness that has been made available because of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Now, have your sins been removed or do they still haunt you? I've talked to so many believers over the years that are older and that carry this guilt for something they did 50, 40, I mean 40, 30, 20, 10, years, just years and years ago. Have your sins been removed or do they still haunt you? Now, here's the beautiful thing. Not only does he take his sins away, but the Bible says that as far as the east is from the west, he removes our sins from us. Or he casts our sins to the very bottom of the sea. I mean, he He removes them. You know, every so often you see this scandal break online where people's Personal information has been exposed, and all of the websites they've gone to or sites that they were a part of becomes known to the general public. Um, and and people have actually taken their lives once they found that they've been exposed. And and we have in our society today. I mean, you can delete your clear your history, and really, is it really clear? I mean, it seems that anything that's on the internet lasts for a while, right? But it, with God, it's really gone been removed. He doesn't hold us against it anymore. And then when that happens, we experience renewal. Look at verse 20 through 21. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I love that idea. Just the English word, refresh. Refresh. What refreshes you? You know, the, the word in Greek is very unique. It means to breathe easily again refreshing, and it it carries the idea of cooling or reviving with fresh air. It's used only here. I mean, have, have you ever been in a stuffy place where you felt that you couldn't breathe? There is an idea here that we can't breathe spiritually. We're always tense because we know that judgment is coming. But here, we know that we can find relief and renewal from God if we turn from our sins. He promises to give it. I mean, do you want freedom? Do you want renewal? To find strength that you've never known before? Plunge yourself into the gospel of grace. Embrace the forgiveness that is yours in Christ Jesus. Renewal cannot come if you are unwilling to repent, however. The outer shell of the egg must be cracked before you can partake of its goodness. For the next verse, I want to actually look... Uh, added in the New Living Translation, which conveys more of the idea of what's going on in verse 20 through 21. The times of refreshment will come from the presence presence of the Lord, and he will again send you Jesus, your appointed Messiah. For he must remain in heaven until the time for the final restoration of all things, as God has promised long ago through his holy prophets. As we experience renewal in following Jesus, we battle on, but we must remember that he is coming again the time of the restoration of all things. We are renewed as we wait for creation to be restored. There will be a time when Jesus comes again and restores all things during the full reign of his kingdom. The effects of the curse will be gone. There will be no more death, sorrow, or tears. Everything will be made new, and we will be with him forever and ever. And that's this is what will happen when he comes again, and he is coming. Now, I want to end... With verse verses twenty-two through twenty-six. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you like a prophet from me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to the that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken, from Samuel and those who come after him, who came after him, also proclaim these days. You were the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God had made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Here's a pretty interesting thing. Several years ago, I had the opportunity, um, I was in a class at seminary. And in this class, we had to, uh, it was a class on Islam, and we had to engage in a conversation with uh, a Muslim. And I hadn't done that very often, but this time I, I was ready for the assignment. And I had a woman in my church who's, um, cause I was pastoring when I was in new England and there was a woman in my church whose son-in-law was a, uh, Palestinian. He was, he was a practicing Muslim and in, of course married her. Her daughter was an American and they had many children, but he was a, a very observant Muslim. And she said that he had wanted to talk to me for some time. So I figure, Hey, let's kill two birds with one stone. And so I get to, uh, I get to their home. We set up the meeting and we come in and we greet one another. And he said, I hope, um, you know, you're okay with us meeting. And he says, do you mind if my wife sits in? I said, no problem. And my mother-in-law, of course. And then he said, my children. I said, no problem. All right. This is grown now. And then the doorbell rings and the door, he opens up the door. And actually before he opens up the door, he looks at me as soon as the doorbell rings and he says, I brought reinforcements. And I thought, oh no, what's going on? And it was this man who had become a Muslim cleric. He had converted from, he was a charismatic Christian to a Catholic, and then he converted to Islam, and he got received school in Egypt. And he was younger, but yet he came with his wife, and they came all to debate me on the, on, on the validity of Christianity versus Islam. So I learned something that night, because he... Muslims believe actually that the prophet like Moses was Muhammad. That's what we're talking about. That passage we just read, but here we see that it actually is Jesus. He is the prophet who is in a long line of prophets, but he's the ultimate prophet and not only a prophet, but he also fills the offices of priest and king. And I got into this argument with him. I mean, it wasn't an argument, but we were going back and forth and they said, Muhammad is in the old Testament. And I went, no, he's not. He's not. He's not because that prophet. They see that in there, and I went, no, that's about Jesus, and the New Testament reveals it's about Jesus, and that silenced them in our conversation, and we continued on, and it was actually a very healthy conversation, and we went away respecting one another. I mean, and I, I proved my point and the validity of the scriptures, um, and it was it was really good conversation, and I do pray, hope, and pray that God does transform their hearts. And going back to our text, though, it was throughout the Old Testament that Jesus was proclaimed. Samuel proclaimed him, and those who came after him actually foretold the days that they were experiencing. And all who listen to the prophets and believe in them shall believe in Jesus, thus becoming God's people, being grafted into God's plan of salvation because of Jesus. It was Abraham who was given given the promise that his offspring would be the one through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. It was Jesus, and God raised him up, sending him to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles, but the blessing that would come was meant to turn everyone from their wickedness. God had Peter include that as a foretaste of what was to come as Gentiles would become recipients of God's salvation. But now... It was the Jews who were to turn from their wickedness. Why? Because time is going to end and judgment is coming. Knowing that God has, what God has done in Christ and knowing how he wants us to turn from our sin, we can see that we are to tell others before time runs out. Time's not going going to go on forever. There is an expiration date that will not be missed. And we must remember that there is one thing that we will not be able to do in heaven. And that's to testify about Jesus to unbelievers. We should do that. I know that's not easy. I know it's hard. And I know that there are people in your life that you've been wanting to do that with for years. Here's my recommendation. If you haven't started praying for them, do. Because here's what I notice what happens is that when I pray for them, then I want to talk to them. I want to engage them. It's not always the case, but most of the time it, it, it does happen that way. And start to share Jesus in piece by piece and start telling them about Jesus. Like, hey, how are you doing? What's going on? great. Or we're really struggling. You had a hard time. Really? Why you had a hard time? What's happening? I mean, show that you care first. Don't just try to be a used car salesman and lay out all the aspects of the gospel, but show care and compassion. Then talks about how God cares for us. And then start going through the story of how God came to meet us where we are. That's how God has ordained it. Going back to our text, we see that Peter healed a man so that others might see and know who Jesus is and receive a foretaste of his coming kingdom. He is coming again, and he's going to judge the living and the dead, and he will bring a new heaven and a new earth with him. So we shouldn't wait. Let's trust him today and tell others of people about who he is with our words and our lives. That's the way it is, as Cronkite said. Boom! That's it for today. We're done with the episode. If this has helped you, what are you going to do? You need to saturate your world. And if it's helped you saturate your world and water your world, then would you do us a huge favor? First of all, hit that subscribe button. I'll wait. Do it now. Did you do it? Good. Leave us a review. Interact with us on our social media pages. And share this episode with other people. And secondly, would you be... Would you consider being a part of our, being one of our watering partners or our Apollos army? We are looking for people to pray for us as we go about this ministry because I, and I really do believe this without building this house, this ministry, the builders labor in vain who build it. Next, we are looking for financial partners. If you would like to partner with us to water the world for Jesus, then go to our website at apolloswater.org and hit the support us button. We are looking for monthly partners, and there are many different categories and ways that you can give. And we want to thank you for considering that and praying for us and partnering with us. And last of all, I got to give a shout out to our team because I couldn't do this besides, I mean, I couldn't do this by myself. I want to thank my ministry running mate, Kevin O'Brien. And then he's our executive editor and our chief strategy officer. And then our social media team, Eliana and Rebecca, who keep everything beautiful and out in front of everybody. And last of all, our amazing sound engineer. Brian Dana, who always makes us sound great. Water your faith, water your world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody.